I think it means we need to get more sophisticated. Like, I think we kind of have lived in this world for the last you know, number of years where we kind of lost the thread on what sophistication was. And so a lot of marketers, you know, were just were able to literally just throw garbage at the wall and you throw enough garbage at the wall, something's going to stick. It's this sort of like, you know, you give a million monkeys a typewriter and one of them's going to write the Iliad. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that's not going to be the definition of sophisticated anymore. You know, marketers have to be a lot more purposeful in their decision making and really understand kind of like how, you know, creative kind of aligns with you know, the target audience and moves them directly. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Mays. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where like New York City, a place for dreamers. And time and time again, it's the place where the greatest dream of all, the American dream, has been tested and triumphed. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. You know, I remember the first time I heard that phrase about New York City, and, and I just thought, I mean, that just says it all. The American dream tested and triumphed. That's awesome. And you know, if that doesn't capture the spirit of the SaaS community as well, I don't know what does. And what's really cool about that is that while America embodies that dream, so many others around the world share that same dream. It's not unique to just America. It's the freedom to create, the freedom to build something great, to make money and make a difference in the world. Well, this week I am hanging out in New York City with about 800 incredible SaaS founders and CEO at the Ascent Conference. Great insights, wisdom, mistakes, fun, and a few shenanigans. These really are an amazing bunch of people and quite a diverse group from startups to unicorns from around the globe and just about every industry you can imagine. I'll give a, a recap and my top five takeaways in our free SaaS group. You can check out the link in the show notes and, and go check that out. Well, in our last episode, I talked with Andrew Foreman. CEO of Gives. Andrew shared how businesses, including SaaS companies like yours and mine, can drive additional revenue and loyalty by allowing customers to choose donations over discounts. So if you missed it, go back and give it a listen. This is the perfect time of year to be thinking about how to partner with your customers to give back. Well, my guest this week is Alex Colmer, founder and CEO of VidMob the world's leading platform for data-driven human creativity. How about that? Well, since founding the company in 2015, Alex has raised more than $95 million and led initiatives that earned VidMob official marketing partner badges from Facebook, Instagram, Google, YouTube, Snapchat, Twitter, Pinterest, and LinkedIn, and recognition by Apple as one of the best apps of the year. No surprise, Alex is an engineer by background and has made a career living at the intersection of technology, design, and consumer entertainment. Well, prior to VidMob, Alex was co-founder and CEO of Autumn Games, a game publisher that developed successful global franchises with partners such as Jimmy Johnson, you know, the seven-time NASCAR champion, that Jimmy Johnson. 
Def Jam, the leading urban culture brand, as well as the award-winning fighting game franchise, Skullgirls. So welcome today's guest, Alex Colmer. Well, hey, Alex, welcome to SAS Fuel. Jeff, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Absolutely. This is great. So tell me a little bit about your background. How does an engineer end up in gaming and then move right on into digital creative? Well, I think that, I guess probably going back, one of the things that I was most afraid of when I was graduating from Cornell was this idea that that I could end up being like truly specialized. And, you know, we definitely live in a world where specialization is probably generally a good thing. And it certainly leads to, I think, an easier career path if you're an expert in, the, in a certain thing. But for me, that prospect was kind of terrifying. The idea that I would like get really good at something and just do that same thing for the, for the rest of my life. And <laughs> so, yeah. And, and so, you know, I was always just drawn to being as like broad an individual as I possibly could. I, you know, read like anything and everything I could from, you know, fiction to nonfiction to, you know, like a, a biography, like, you know, a, you know, history, et cetera. And I think that kind of pushed me down a path where like the creative side of me had a space to, to live and grow. And, you know, it kind of led me into, I think the natural you know place. This is also in the early, you know, I guess, you know, early part of the internet growth when, you know, there were a lot of like interesting things happening at that intersection of media and technology. And so it just kind of felt natural to me as almost like a place to like run away from specialization. I like that. So what have been the, the benefits of, of not being specialized? Well, you know, I mean, I think that it probably leads to ultimately, I think it's helped me become a much more capable entrepreneur. But I think that, you know, certainly for you know, my you know, 20s and probably early 30s, you know, I sort of watched the majority of my friends who were, you know, either, you know, bankers or traders or, you know, specialized in whatever field they were in, you know, experienced more success in their careers. They, they advanced, you know, further, faster. But, you know, after that, it got to a point where I think now I can be far more empathetic as a leader. I, I think I'm sort of capable of understanding kind of all of the different employees within the different, you know, disciplines within the company. And, you know, I think it was absolutely the right path. But I, yeah, and it's one of the things I talk about with, you know, sort of younger entrepreneurs is that like the, the understanding up front, the pros and cons of being a generalist. Uh, well, it's definitely both, but I completely agree that having that general background and the understanding, because you see things from a different perspective, you're not pigeonholed into one view because you've seen it from so many different ways. Yeah. And as, you know, as the company grows, you end up, I mean, you know, on a given day, you know, I'll, you know, have conversations with our engineering and data science team or product team, and then over with the marketing and, you know, creative side, you know, like there's, there's definitely a lot of you know hats being worn, and you know while probably not as you know talented or smart as you know all of the sort of subject matter experts in each of those fields, at least I can kind of understand where they're coming from, and you know, hopefully have uh, enough of a foundation that I can be sort of helpful as they kind of push forward on all the things that are driving the company. So, as a generalist, do you think you're more left-brained or right-brained or some kind of combination? I, you know, I think it's probably pretty even split. Like, I definitely think like an engineer, you know, for me, you know, that idea of like sort of, you know, building and how do you actually like structure a solution, you know, that sort of, you know, systems approach to thinking is definitely like always there. But at the same time, and, and this yeah, obviously ties really well into VidMob, I deeply appreciate the value and necessity of human creativity. 
and it's sort of, you know, to me, kind of what makes life interesting. And, you know, and, and so for us at Vidmob, like it's sort of finding that intersection, how do we build technology that can support and augment and, and enhance the, you know, the activities of the creator? It, that middle ground is kind of exactly where I want to be. That's great. How'd you come up with the idea for Vidmob and what led you to that? Well, I think there's a lot of things that were sort of happening, you know, in and around me that were, you know, in some regards, like sort of obvious in retrospect. So I had you know, been one of a you know, group of folks that had helped build a, a video game, you know, publisher. And, you know, had, so I'd spent a number of years helping to, you know, build kind of large, you know, video game, you know, properties, you know, sort of console and, and then eventually mobile games. And our first game actually was a game called Def Jam Rapstar. And that actually used the, the camera from the Sony Move and the, you know, Microsoft Connect to sort of film people, you know, singing and performing and then kind of rebroadcast that. So that sort of, you know, put a little bit of a video lens in the back of my head. At the same time, you know, I was on the board of a startup kind of like the online film school and, you know, sort of saw firsthand just how many people out there were you know, sort of becoming skilled editors. And, and, I, and I could see, you know, that this was an area where there was a lot of growing supply. And then, but, and then, you know, like I think more, more broadly, I found myself really wanting to find a business that I could build that would be more mission and purpose driven. You know, like I, I just kind of got to this point where, you know, I, I was, I guess a little over 40 years old and, you know, felt like if I was going to dedicate, you know, every waking hour of my day to the building of a company, and this was probably going to be a decade or decades long endeavor, it didn't seem like too high a bar that that should be something that was positive in the world. And so like all these things kind of came together and what I kept coming back to was, you know, the internet was transitioning from a static platform with text and images, which were pretty easy to communicate on, to at, well, first a video network, and then beyond that, you know, AR, and you know, now the metaverse. Right. And so it was sort of clear that we were going to be leaving a time where it was easy to communicate and entering a time where it was more difficult. And so as I sort of thought about that, what kind of occurred to me was, you know, the first kind of quarter century of the internet. We, we basically had like payment friction and security friction as sort of like omnipresent factors under like everything on the web. And that, and that sort of led to, you know, Stripe and PayPal and, you know, and now all the, you know, sort of security you know, platforms, you know, those things just, and that condition led to some en enormous and great companies. And when I looked forward to me, you know, what I saw was like creative friction existing everywhere. You know, like in, in under everything, not just advertising, but gen generally all communications. And so I figured, all right, well, someone's going to have to build an infrastructure platform, an underlying technology that can make creativity more accessible and scalable. And where the dots here connected, and this is kind of why I ended up getting really excited about it, was when I knew as an engineer that technology would have to play a role in this solution. But the other side of my brain also knew that technology alone wasn't going to get it done. You know, that, that sort of showing up to Nike, Reebok, Adidas, you know, all with an algorithm that's going to make the same ads for all of them, or a, like a Rails-based template tool that's going to make this essentially the same ad, that that would be like almost the last thing that any communicator wanted, you know, and like their job is really to sort of connect emotionally in a unique way with their consumer. And so it basically ended up sort of connecting the dots here where it was like, all right, well, 
if one of the things we see happening uh, broadly is you have all these kind of like negative labor factors, you know, like sort of globalization, AI, automation, all these things kind of putting pressure on just like the worker. Right. One of the areas that seemed like it was kind of somewhat protected from the you know impact of AI was creativity. Interesting. And so like, I saw that I could kind of like connect these two thoughts where I wanted to build a business that had purpose and meaning. And, and then you had this sort of big business opportunity and, you know, it came down to, all right, well, if we can build a platform that can actually, you know, scale access to creativity, the thing like if it was successful, it would create a lot of jobs. And if we set the rule set in such a way that those jobs were good jobs, then that would be a net, you know, positive in the world. And so that was kind of, you know, like literally my first slide and the first deck was, you know, we're going to create a million quality jobs. And when we started designing the platform, you know, we like made all sorts of conscious decisions about how we were going to govern this, where, you know, there was never a way to sort by, you know, cheapest price. You know, this wasn't about like crowdsourcing and getting 100 people to work for free and then paying one of them. You know, it was sort of all the early models of sort of scaling creativity. We kind of threw them all out and just focused on building a platform that was sort of net beneficial to the creator. I like that. So you talk about a mission-driven company. What is your mission and how has that, uh, that developed over time? Yeah. So, you know, originally it was that like sort of very like quantitative, we're going to create a million quality jobs. And, you know, that sort of like nudged us and pushed us down the path. And what we saw was that this, this kind of mission orientation actually played a role in like the types of people that were attracted to coming and working with us in a positive way. Like, like we were able to kind of bring like really talented people and kind of win over other entities because they wanted to like, you know, join the mission. But the sort of quantitative goal was not enough. You know, what we started to see was that there were actually all these like other challenges in, you know, the sort of the creator advertising industry where you have, you know, very homogenous world. You know, this is back in you know, 2014, 2015. I think something like 9% of all creative directors were female. Yeah, industry-wide. Wow, that's surprising. And, you know, similarly non-diverse, very geographically focused in you know, a few cities, New York, you know, LA, London, et cetera. And so we started to realize that actually it wasn't just about like the, the quantitative number of creating jobs, but actually this was about like sort of positively impacting the industry. And so we actually changed the mission articulation and for years talked about Vidmob's you know, mission as evolving creativity for the better. And that's in many ways where, you know, still where we are today. Like, how do we, you know, build technology to evolve creativity for the better? And the thing is that phrasing can carry a lot of different meanings. You know, so it, it's certainly about, you know, labor conditions, you know, diversity issues, you know, more than 50% of the creators in our network qualify for some sort of diversity metric and have for the last, I think, over three years. Wow. That's really good. But that for the better is also about bringing data into play. And, you know, we essentially created an entirely new kind of data, this you know, creative intelligence, and have essentially built a platform that helps marketers understand kind of why creative is, before, is performing the way it, it is and gives them the tools to then drive increased performance and have their you know, creative perform better. And so, you know, it, that, that sort of simple statement of evolving creativity for the better actually gives us a platform to kind of house a, a number of different things. I like that. And I think that's something that's very needed in the marketplace because you can put ads up and sometimes they do well, sometimes they don't, but you don't necessarily know why or, you know, how to make them better, how to make something good, great, or how to fix something that's bad and, and make it 
make it good. Well, and it's and it's more needed than ever now. You know, there's some pretty big macro issues that have happened in the last you know twelve months. Where, you know, in a lot of ways, the the sort of marketing industry has become incredibly over reliant on you know targeting and other kind of media side optimization levers. So right, like you know, ad tech as a whole is almost entirely media side. You know, how do I build technology to, you know, further segment my audiences or to improve my targeting capabilities or, you know, dynamically manipulate, you know, budgets across different platforms as they perform differently. But what's interesting is that's always been the small driver of results. So Google will, says that creative is responsible for 70% of performance and the other 30% is, you know, kind of the, the media side levers. And so you have this world where, Basically, like the entire ad tech universe, I mean, like literally thousands of companies are all focused on the 30%. Right. And the reason for that is it's just easier to build technology for these things than it is to deal with, with like, how do you improve human creativity? <laughs> right. And so that was already a busted construct. But then last year, you know, Apple announced the you know, move with, with ATT, uh, App Track Trans- Transparency, like moving away from the unique identifiers. And now Google's sort of following suit with the you know, coming move away from cookies. And so what's happened is that that, that 30%, which was already you know, a misinvestment anyway, just lost probably you know, a significant, you know, 20 to 50% of its efficacy because targeting doesn't work the way it used to. And so you know, what we're seeing now is really the only path to sort of making up the losses as we move into a more you know, private world is through being able to get smarter about your creative, bring data to bear, and actually be able to improve the bigger lever and use that as a driver for performance. So like it wasn't, we didn't plan that. We didn't have any special insight that this was coming down the pike, but it just so happened that you know we end up being pretty well positioned for a macro change that's impacting literally every market on the planet. And, and that's absolutely true. And, and I think we're getting back, while data is important, we're getting back to more human engagement things that, that matter to people. And so it's, it engages the creative side and gets them involved, not just, you know, seeing an ad because you were targeted because of some data, uh, data point. Yeah. I mean, and like, I mean, the reality is like the Facebook algorithm, Google's algorithm, like these things were, were so good that for the last you know decade, it was really true that they were going to show the right message to the right person at the right time. And so if that's kind of like the foundational construct, then it really doesn't matter what you said. Like creative didn't matter. You know, like if you knew you were going to find a person who definitely wanted to buy a Ford at exactly that moment, then all you had to do was just sort of like give him or her like a little final nudge across. And what's happening is that's coming to an end. And so now we're getting back to, you know, in a sense, like back to the future or whatever, where, you know, like, you know, creative actually has to, you know, persuade. And, you know, and, and sort of, I know that like talking to folks at, at Meta about this, they sort of use a similar term to us. It's like your creative now has to do the targeting, you know, as it has to carry a load there. So like the creative has to find its audience, you know, speak to that, you know, target customer and move them directionally where you're trying to go. And I think that's an exciting change. It's interesting. It will definitely cause some issues for a lot of advertisers that are used to the old model. I mean, anytime there's an algorithm change that, that, that kind of happens across the industry. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it means we need to get more sophisticated. Like, I think we kind of have lived in this world for the last you know, number of years where we kind of lost the thread on what sophistication was. And so a lot of marketers you know, were, just, were able to literally just throw garbage at the wall. And you throw enough garbage at the wall, something's going to stick. 
It's this sort of like, you know, you give a million monkeys a typewriter and one of them is going to write the Iliad. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that's not going to be the definition of sophisticated anymore. You know, marketers have to be a lot more purposeful in their decision making and really understand kind of like how, you know, creative kind of aligns with, you know, target audience and moves them directly in a way you want to go. So how does AI move that along? You know, what does it do to support it? Or does AI stifle creativity? Our viewpoint is that AI, whether it's here in this industry or elsewhere, is generally going to be a force to improve and enhance. You know, like I think the sort of like common misconception is that AI is going to steal people's jobs. And, you know, the way we sort of look at it is like, that's wrong. The AI is not going to steal your job. But someone who uses AI better than you will. And that makes a lot of sense. And so that, that's sort of like where we are. And so for us, what that means is you know, the AI is not doing the creative, but we can use a number of kind of AI-based technologies, you know, optical character rec- recognition, natural language processing, computer vision. So we can kind of at scale programmatically understand what are all the things that are happening creatively inside the ads of our clients. So you know, one of our clients connects their you know, Facebook account or their Snap account or their Google account or Amazon. Our platform will download every ad they've ever run. So it's literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands of, of pieces of creative that, that they've run over the last few years and just go through frame by frame and understand all the creative decisions that have been made. So, you know, the spring logo or the fall logo, what's the contrast and color between that and the foreground and the background? What are the emotions on the actors and actresses' faces? You know, like what are the words that are on screen and, and it's the font and font size? And what are the what's the pacing of that language? Is it a, you know, a, a comfortably, you know, comfortable pace that's easy to read or a fat you know, all these things are actually like AI derivable data points. And then we can take that creative attribute data set and compare it with the behavior data set and then sit ML models on top and actually start to get to like insights about kind of why things are behaving the way they are. And so, you know, in a sense, it's like we're kind of seeing this same broad trend happening in many different industries where we're kind of moving from like a world of essentially like serial processing to parallel processing. Yes. And so, you know, like in the you know serial construct here, marketers would have been doing A-B testing. I'm going to test A, asset A against asset B. And that's great. Learn asset B, A is better, but you have no idea why. And then you have no idea how A compares to T. <laughs> you already like, right. You got to run a lot of tests to do that. And so what we do is we essentially like parallel path and test literally every ad you've ever run and look at how they all do together in one data set. And then from there, get to, you know, creative you know, insights on, you know, ways in which, you know, to resonate or not with your audience. Interesting. So it's, it's all on our own data sets, not over the entire universe of everybody that's run ads, or is it both? It's a little bit of both. I mean, so it, it, you know, primarily, it's about your own data set. But, you know, because we do work with so many marketers across, you know, all the major platforms and, 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 you know, and have, when we have enough clients in a category, you know, beverages or auto or beauty or, you know, e-com, we can then create uh, norms for those categories. And so we can look at, all right, well, here are broad-based, you know, sort of category, you know, generic, you know, insights that, you know, we see as trends across the whole kind of beverages category or us. And, you know, we find that's a help to our, our marketers as well, our clients as well. At least a starting point. Yeah, that's right. And that's exactly right. It, it, it provides, you sort of end up in like different like strata of insights. So at the highest level, it's, you know, 
these are kind of best practices across all of Facebook or all of YouTube. And then you go down a level into the sort of category specific, you know, all of e-com, you know, and then down all the way into like a, a specific brand. It makes sense. So what's the surprising insights have you learned as you've taken this journey and uh, using AI and creative? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like what's interesting is how different the different platforms are. And, you know, you might think that like, you know, TikTok, Snap Stories and, and Instagram are all the same because they're all sort of shaped the same. But the way to succeed creatively in each of those platforms is actually quite different. And so how, you know, opening shot sequences impact, you know, engagement on you know, Insta versus Snap or like, like that to me is where um, a lot of the more interesting you know, data has been found is like helping people understand how to make essentially the same kind of creative concept work at its peak level in these quite different channels. Yeah. As a marketer looking at those, it, it's easy to look at it from the outside and go, well, I, I shot one ad. Can I just put it on all the platforms the same way? And no, it, you, or you could, but it won't perform the same. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, like most people now kind of understand that, but it certainly wasn't the case, you know, three, four years ago when people were just like, oh, I'll just take my TV ad and I'll run it everywhere. And um, now people are understanding not only does that not work, but just that, hey, we've got to take, you know, these, these different platforms and actually create differently for them. Yeah, without a doubt. So have you learned more being, you know, inside the industry, out of the industry or... So have the ideas that you've had come from inside the industry being an insider or have they come from outside and building the solution? I think a mix. So it's definitely helpful to be an outsider and not be sort of constrained by the sort of thinking, well, this is how it's always done. But at the same time, you need to have enough people around you that understand how the industry works so that you're not just kind of like tilting at windmills. So, you know, I think probably the most obvious example is when we started connecting into the ads API so that we could distribute finished creative into platforms where it could then be trafficked by you know, our customers' media agencies, we started getting creative data back or sort of performance data back on each piece of creative. And so as an outsider, it didn't occur to me that that was terribly interesting. I kind of assumed that creatives would always know how the thing they made you know, performed. And then what, what I started to realize is that actually the industry in the 90s in the great unbundling pulled apart all creative and media agencies. And that is still how it's structured to this day. And so clients will have a different creative agency, a different media agency, oftentimes in different holding companies. And so the folks who are doing the creative basically throw it over a fence to a totally separate company who then does the media work. And they have no connection to performance. And so in our industry, like the way a creator might know that what they did is good is they might win a trophy. That can. Right, right. But certainly no feedback about, hey, this decision to, you know, open on this shot or, or have, you know, use this, you know, your style. Like they never got any feedback about whether that was actually driving business results. And so I think everyone kind of just was comfortable with that because like that's the way it had been for the last 25 years. Like that's and when I looked at it from the outside, I was like, this doesn't make any sense at all. You know, like Maybe it did in the 90s when it would take, you know, months to get your Nielsen data back and it would take more months to make new creative and cost. But we get really valuable information back on, you know, creative measurement within seconds of launching a campaign. Right, right. And so then to not be able to use that information to improve the creative during a campaign just literally didn't make any sense. And the other idea to me, like, you know, that like just focusing entirely on optimizing my media 
signals, you know, like continuously every day, changing my targeting, changing my, you know, campaigns. Like that makes sense. Why on earth would I never even consider changing and optimizing the thing that was far more important, the creative. Right. The 70% side. Yeah. And so like, to, like, I think those like to some extent being an outsider, like those two things just literally didn't make any sense. It was like, no, like that can't be. And so, you know, that I think helped us, you know, start pushing down the path, building what's now, you know, sort of a software layer that can help kind of reunify and in a sense, kind of like undo the great unbundling and bring the creative and media side back together. And what we see is that actually everyone loves this because creators like the idea of having data signals coming back. It makes them smarter and better and they actually can get better at their craft. Like if you tell someone, hey, here's a tool that's going to help you actually deliver better, more valuable work to your clients. You know, that's something the creators want. Right, right. Why would you not want that? And on the flip side, you know, the, it gives the media side visibility into like, you know, sort of the creative pipeline, what's coming down the pipe, when it's going to be delivered, and also the ability to uh, have some you know, agency and control. And if they are missing you know, you know, assets or specific formats for different you know, platforms, or if an ad that was working last week has now decayed and needs to be refreshed, like it sort of gives them the ability to actually have some degree over control of the thing that's, that they're actually like 100% on the line for performance for. It seems much more collaborative instead of just throwing it over the fence or finger pointing. Well, you know, the ad's not working because the creative people didn't do what they needed to do. It's it, it's much more a collaborative process where everybody's working together and understands the score. That's right. And, you know, so that I think, you know, would benefit it from being, you know, sort of X industry. But at the same time, you know, we've always been very focused on, not being seen as a disruptor. Like that's like our whole thing here. This is not about like displacing existing agencies or, you know, this or that. Like we're trying to build a technology platform that can support and help the whole industry, the you know, the category as it sits and be very and be very collaborative with the existing industry infrastructure. And so, you know, that requires having a number of, you know, folks that I work with every day who actually have a lot of experience in exactly this field and can help us kind of navigate and and, you know, basically collaborate with an existing ecosystem in a way that's net positive for everyone. That's good. So what have been some big lessons that you've learned in, uh, in starting you know, multiple companies here and growing them to significant size, having great success? What are lessons learned along the way? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, th- I think one of the things that, that I always sort of come back to is there's really no shortcuts. If someone, if you talk to, to an entrepreneur and he or she says, you know, I'm going to build a unicorn and, you know, sell it next year or, or whatever. Like I'd kind of run away from that. You know, if you're, if what you're trying to build is a lasting valuable business, you just have to kind of put in the work, you know, every day, <laughs> slowly go through the grind and you're going to have, you know, really bad days, really good days. And, you know, I think one of the core lessons that I'd learned personally is you need to figure out how to like flatten out that emotional amplitude between the good and the bad days, because it's just not, healthy. And it also doesn't help you be a good leader if your you know, emotions are kind of flying around. Swinging back and forth. Yeah. And so I, uh, you know, I try to be pretty flat uh, in a sense. Like I, you know, I, I hope it doesn't take away my ability to be excited when things are going well, but I don't get terribly upset when something isn't working either. You know, like I know that, you know, we have a talented team and, you know, whatever the, you know, the challenge is, we'll, we'll work through it. I actually heard a great quote from, uh, I think it was the founder of Coinbase, where he said that, you know, building a company is, you know, running from disaster to disaster with enthusiasm. <laughs> and, and I think there's like, it's a, sad but true. Yes. 
and there's an element of that. And, you know, it, like it helps that I just love this, you know, like, and, and the idea of like taking tackling really you know difficult challenges and you know, working with a great team to find a solution. That's for me, that's really fun. So I think like that, like being like, consciously figuring out how to kind of like flatten the emotional amplitude is one of like the core learnings you know, for us. That's a big one. So when you left uh, Autumn Games, what was the transition point there? Why did you decide wildly successful company, great titles? Why did you leave there and, and start something new? What was the driver? Yeah, I mean, it, it had been kind of a, a challenge. Like we, you know, we did make great games, but you know, like we ended up kind of in the middle of a you know, lawsuit between you know, sort of a distributor who you know who had been in the industry for decades and and, and a bank, and you know that really kind of took a lot of the like wind out of the sails of the company. And when we sort of got through that and got the games back and it started kind of, you know, in a sense, like rebuilding around the Skullgirls franchise, it had just kind of like, you know, sort of soured some of like enthusiasm for, for the industry. And the other thing was, you know, just like an economic reality of just trying to figure out how to like do the best thing for, you know, the shareholders there and sort of, you know, following that, you know, thinking about, you know, sort of like recapping the company to, to start like kind of rebuilding didn't seem like that was going to be the best path. And so we ended up just sort of like, you know, starting on a long path of kind of rebuilding around, you know, off of existing cash flow from, you know, the properties that we had and knew that that was going to take, you know, years to do, but it would hopefully preserve the equity value of the company, the folks that, that had invested. And so like that kind of created like a, in a sense, like space where I had time to begin thinking about, you know, other, other businesses. And at, at, at some point I went to the, the board of the business and said, Hey, like, you know, I want to start building another company. And if you'll allow me to do that, then, you know, I'll sort of you know, work for free on this and keep sort of shepherding it along its path. And I think it ended up being Seems like a win-win. It ended up being, it was sort of designed to be a win-win for, for both sides. And you know, I hope that is exactly how it worked out. But, and I think the other thing was it, you know, like building games is, you know, it's a hit business, right? And you know, you basically spend, you know, at least two years, you know, working on, you know, something that you believe in before you get like real signal. I guess in, if you're making sort of smaller mobile games, you can accelerate that. But all the things we were doing were kind of bigger games. And I think you get to this point where you can build great properties. You know, like our, you know, Jimmy Johnson, you know, game was a great game. Skullgirls was a great game, you know, same with Rapstar. But there's like sort of external factors that change, that impact the success or not success of, of those things. When it came to you know the process of building you know sort of a SaaS you know you know technology company with, with Vidmob, it just seemed very logical. You know, it was always relatively easy for me to see what the strategy was that we needed to you know to, to you know like what we needed to accomplish. You know, what the time frame was to do these different things. Who were the partners we needed to get you know into business with? And so it just you know became for me a much more logical you know uh, path. Makes sense. So how do you pick uh, great partners? What was the the process there? Yeah, I mean, I think like for us, to some extent, like in our field, it's fairly obvious. You know, if you're going to be a marketing technology company, you better work with <laughs> Facebook, Google, the Amazon, you know, Snap, yeah, you know, LinkedIn, yeah, etc. And if you're going to be in the creative world, it helps to be in business with Adobe. And so, of course, you know, like at some level, it wasn't that we were like particularly like you know, genius. It's just that like we knew who we need to be you know business with. But what I think we did do really well. My one of my co-founders, Craig Koblenz, was one of the you know first hundred employees of Facebook, and he sort of talked about like the early days where they had like a number of partners, but there were some partners that they did a lot of business with, and what it came down to was they just really liked those folks, 
And so, you know, from like the beginning of our partnership program, we just focused on, you know, really sort of showing up the right way all the time, being, you know, incredibly dedicated to being a great partner and thinking not just about what is good for us, but actually like first and foremost, what's good for our, our partners. And, you know, over the years that sort of became our reputation. And so that enabled us to form valuable partnerships, not just like partnerships where you're like got a, you know, a logo on your site and it's like, yeah, we're a partner with such and such. And I think then we became kind of really proud of this where like we had these like sort of deep and meaningful relationships with, you know, large swaths of the ecosystem. And so we just kept investing in it. And today it's, you know, it's a very important part of our you know strategy. And it's one that I think is going to grow in value, you know, at, over the years. So running a creative company, I and mean, this is a, a big part of what you do, how does that affect your company culture? Uh, is it creative? Is it uh, more reserved? I can't imagine that it would be. So how do you deal with all the creatives? Yeah. I mean, listen, the first thing is we love having, I mean, like we are absolutely a creative company. That's awesome. And, and, I mean, it, uh, you know, it sort of shows up in, you know, the way, like when you think about like the you know, our offsites and when we get the company together and like the types of things that we do, it's, it's just like, I think it'd be pretty different if we were like a, you know, insurance company offsite. You know, so we have things like, you know, color wars and, you know, like we, one of the things we did for a long time was we did this like presentation improv where, you know, people would have to present in front of the whole company, but they wouldn't know what the slide was that they were going to be presenting until they got there. <laughs> That's great. And so, you know, we're sort of like constantly trying to figure out what are the things. And, and in that case, that was about getting people comfortable being on stage presenting as a skill. But then we applied our, you know, our, our sort of fun tweaked in a way to make it unique to us. You know, and, and this was an idea that actually our, our head of, you know, client solutions, Jill Gray, you know, uh, brought over to us. And so we're like just always trying to think about like, how do we evolve the, the system? How do we like invest in, in the culture? And, you know, it's a, it's a moving target, right? Because like the culture we had pre-COVID was one thing. It was great. But then, you know, when we went, you know, largely remote during, you know, sort of 2020 into 2021, we, we then had kind of a different culture. And now as we sort of, you know, obviously we're still in COVID, but, you know, sort of, you know, people, you know, the world's starting to kind of go back towards more normal. We're in this kind of like third cultural epic where, you know, their offices are open, but not, you know, people are in there sort of flexibly. And, you know, it's, I think it's just like the first thing is we care. Like, like that's like the first thing is like, it actually really matters to me whether we have kind of a, you know, a culture that kind of nods to both our creative side and our engineering side. And once we have that sort of you know, position of caring, then it's just about like doing the work of, you know, trying different ideas out, figuring out. And if something works, keep it. If it doesn't work, throw it out and try something new. That's good. So do you have uh, creatives that have become more engineering focused and engineers that have become more creative through the process working together? Yeah. I mean, I think like on the, on the engineering side, what that often ends up doing is getting more involved in like actual like product and design and, and sort of understanding how the creator use case is. Yeah. You know, so that I think is how like, you know, typically engineers kind of get pulled towards the creative side and on the sort of creative side, it's, it's basically, you know, people get interested in product, right. And, and, they, and they start to take interest in, and we definitely have seen folks primarily get interested in sort of like the, you know, data science and data, you know, data analysis side and get kind of pulled, you know, that people go from sort of like more like creative roles to, you know, some of these kind of, you know, data, you know, creative analytics, you know, types of things just because they find it fascinating. 
And so there's a fair amount of kind of movement, you know, back and forth from kind of like product side of the house into the creative side or, or vice versa. And just taking a quick break. Well, today's episode is sponsored by Champion Leadership Group. Get free growth tools and map out a growth plan to scale your SaaS beyond 10 million. Travel with fellow SaaS entrepreneurs on your growth journey using a proven methodology that is mentor-guided, results-focused, and peer-supported. Celebrate wins and quickly rebound from setbacks to achieve profitable growth, impact, and freedom. Unleash your SaaS growth at championleadership.com. So there have been a number of companies like WeWork or Uber that have been very much in the media, movies made about them, that kind of thing. What are some things that you might want to take from their stories or some things that you might want to avoid from their stories? That's, that's a good question. So, yeah, I definitely have a number of people that are watching either Super Pumped or I can't remember what the WeWork yeah, show is called. but We Crashed. We Crashed, yeah. like, And I have like really kind of conflicted opinions about this because like to me... I think like the the sort of like glorification and sort of celebration of their demise just doesn't feel right. And you know, and, and but I understand kind of why people like respond negatively to some of like the you know the excesses and personalities. And so like, like to me, what I take away from it, like particularly in the case of Uber, they had an incredible vision. And you know, and and the idea of you know building a technology platform that could you know, make it easier for people to move around. And, and it frankly has had a great deal of, you know, positive impact, right? Like, so you, know, you think about all the jobs that have been created for drivers. You think about, you know, the reduction in like drunk driving deaths and such like that, because people can like, like there's a lot that should be celebrated by what they did. But, you know, I think some of like the, the way they showed up culturally is certainly not, you know, how I would like to build a company, you know? And so, you know, for me on that particular instance, you know, I love to sort of model the vision, you know, and going after something really big. And for us, that's, you know, building sort of like the sales force of creative operations. Like we are absolutely trying to build a very big company and we understand that that's going to take a long time. Like it's not, we're not going to just go like from here to. Not a unicorn overnight. No. And, you know, frankly, if we could, I'm sure it would be, it would end up then setting it up to fail quicker than after. On the WeWork side, I think like for me, you know, like ultimately what it comes down to is that like raw economics matter, right? Like, you know, and so like, we've always been very focused on making sure that we have like a, a really positive sort of gross margin and that the unit economics makes sense and that the underlying business that we're building, it's not just about growth, but are we building a quality business? You know, like, and so, you know, I think as, as I sort of look at those, like I want to carry and I want to have the ambition organizationally that they had, but it has to be done in the right way. You know, like it has to be you know, built on a sustainable foundation. You know, the sort of the culture has to be set right in a way that like, you know, all of our employees feel like they're like proud of, the, you know, the company that they're a part of. And I don't think that those things are misaligned. You know, like I, I think you can absolutely try to like change the world in a meaningful way, but, you know, you don't have to be an asshole to get there. I like that. So it's a balance of being, having core vision and moving in a direction, but a little bit of ridiculous as well in that you're, you're having fun and being creative and spontaneous at the same time. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I, it's, I definitely find myself, I, I gravitate towards people who are both incredibly serious, but, you know, don't take themselves too seriously. <laughs> yeah, I find that those often are the people that I, you know, most enjoy being around. And, and I certainly try to be one of those myself. I definitely do not take myself too seriously. 
I know that I have, you know, like, you know, flaws you know, personally, but I'm going to give an A effort every single day. And, you know, and I think that like that balance of being sort of, you know, serious and, and also, you know, in making work enjoyable is kind of like where I'd like to be. So what are you most proud of? I mean, you've had some great accomplishments. You know, what are you most proud of in business and in life as well? Well, I mean, I think in life, that's probably got to be like, you know, your kids and your, your wife and like the family. Like, I think that's where you kind of sort of start at those things. And, you know, I married my college girlfriend, you know, very happily married. I try to be a good, good husband. And, you know, we have two you know great kids that, you know, I you know, take a lot of pleasure in sort of watching them grow. So like, that's sort of like, you know, sort of table stakes. Sure. In work. And, you know, the interesting thing is like, there isn't a difference. Like, I actually think that I'm like literally the exact same person at home as I am on the subway, as I am, you know, in the office, as I am, you know, meeting and talking with investors about writing, you know, very large checks in our business. You know, I, I don't change who I am in any of those those situations. That's really good. And so that's something that, like that I'm you know, personally proud of. But from a company perspective, it, it's not about the fact that we've grown Vidmob to being, you know, this sort of, you know, global company or the fact that we've, you know, grown revenues to X or that we've achieved, you know, sort of Y valuation, you know, like it was never for me about trying to build a, a, a unicorn or, you know, a decacorn. Yeah. <laughs> it was really always about we will succeed if we build a business that when the overwhelming majority of our employees kind of look back at their careers, you know, sort of 30, 40 years from now, they're like, that was the best job I ever had. And so, you know, I think that in a lot of cases, that's on a path to being true. And like, that's the thing that I'm sort of most proud of about sort of where we are today. And I hope that we can continue that and, you know, make it a reality. You know, and, and so, and the, you have this kind of knowledge that if we succeed in that, then all the other things sort of will naturally sort themselves out. Like if, if those things are the case, then people will show up and not just provide the kind of salary determined effort level, but they bring kind of like discretionary effort on top of it. You know, like when people care about a business, they provide better output, they work, they care more, they, you know, and so that leads to then, you know, faster growth and outcompeting your know, competitors and, and, and those things. And so, you know, I think by succeeding in that sort of first thing, it's actually helping us get to the financial metrics and things that our investors and other folks will care about. That's a fantastic measure of success. I think so. And it's also the kind of thing that, you know, you can really like, I will be proud of that, you know, like whether if you sort of just say like your goal is a number, I don't know that I would ever, it would be very difficult for me to be proud of that. It's just a number, but it's not people. Yeah. I like that. Where can people find out more about uh, VidMob and about you online? I am at Colmerica on Twitter. Uh, VidMob is just VidMob.com. We have a pretty active LinkedIn page and, uh, and at VidMob on Twitter as well. And we would obviously love uh, anyone who's interested to uh, look us up. There are a lot of job postings all the time. And uh, if anyone wants to come join a company that's won a lot of awards for being one of the best places to work, you know, reach out to us. Definitely. And we'll make sure and link all of those in the show notes. And, and I would echo that. If you want a place that uh, you look back and you know, think that this is the best place I ever worked, VidMob would be a fantastic choice. So reach out. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you, Jeff. Absolutely. Well, it's great to meet you. Great to have another conversation with you. Wish you and VidMob the best and uh, love what you're doing in the space for ads and, and also VidMob gives. There's a lot of things that you're doing with nonprofits as well. So it's a lot more than just about revenue. 
for the company. Yeah, no, I mean, it, and it's, it's sort of unfortunate we didn't talk more about that. But I mean, we literally just had a team of, I think, 17 people down in Brazil building houses, you know, building two houses for two you know, homeless women and their families. Uh, you know, like the, everything that gives does, whether it's, you know, working with the hundred or so, you know, charities that we worked with last year, our work with the ad council, you know, or, or these, you know, sort of boots on the grounds type projects where, you know, employees are going and actually making an impact in communities. Like that's another huge part of, you know, kind of what VidMob is. And, you know, I think it just kind of like ties it all together in, in a really meaningful way. So it brings it right back to what we started the conversation with, and that is about a mission-driven company. Amen. All right. Thanks, Alex. Great talking with you. All right, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks again to Alex for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. Learn more about Alex and VidMob at vidmob.com. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. While you're there, please subscribe or follow us at sasfuel.com. It's all free. And everyone who subscribes this week will receive their name beautifully etched on a grain of sand. You can pick up your grain at a beach near you. Just don't drop it through tiny, tiny, tiny. All right. Join us next week for our conversation with Patrick Hill, founder of Dystopia, a streaming platform for creatives. He's doing some really interesting things, combining original content, education, and merchandising. So be sure and check it out next week. And until we meet again, keep chasing that American dream no matter where you are. Make it your dream and enjoy the journey.